All right. Well, hello there and welcome to this week's episode of Fighting Words. Today I am joined by the one and only Leanne Erickson. Hello. Good morning. Do you have How a nickname? L.A. L.A. That's right. Los Angeles. Yes. Or Leanne. I mean, whatever. That's not actually any shorter. No, you're right. It's not. It's actually longer. Yeah. In, L.A. In middle school, they called me Sticks. All right. Sticks it is. Welcome to the <laughs> podcast. So, Thank you for bringing that back. Yes. Well, the reason I invited you are because we got in a fight we did. a few weeks ago about social justice issues and um but not really the reason I did is because well there's a couple reasons one this uh podcast has been very testosterone heavy wow which is fine in one sense but we need to hear some women I appreciate that thank you we got to smash the patriarchy that's right actually I'm doing this not to actually bo- no I'm doing this to bless the patriarchy there you go hey while we're there what do you think of patriarchy <laughs> I'm going to actually do a whole podcast on that. That's next. On why Stay tuned. we love the patriarchy. but I do love I, the patriarchy. I actually... Well, that's provocative. That's enough. All right? <laughs> it's, been, it's been real. See you later. <laughs> I'm out. Um, so, so, one, I wanted to... I do want to include more female voices on here. Um, sometimes people ask, like, where's the place for women in ministry at Redeemer, and I'm like, all over the place. And I get where the question comes from because the elders and the preachers are, are men. There's a strong uh, flavor of male leadership from the front. Mm-hmm. But uh, we have and celebrate many women in leadership, and so we want to uh, give voice to that and help people understand that. So that's one reason. And the other reason is just because of your area of focus and passion, I think it's obviously relevant, always relevant now, and that would be, what would it be, Leanne? What would my area of focus and passion be? Yes. Probably, I know the word has become a little bit charged, but certainly social justice curriculum. Go! I know, there it is. I said it. Okay. So this this is why, why, why did you say it would be charged, even the word? Well, I think because if we look at the way that it has been used and even contrived in media, I think even social media, social justice, social justice media. Yeah, social justice warrior has become a bit of a stigma, which is unfortunate because really we are just fighting for justice. And I think I'm a teacher. When you say we, you're including yourself in the social justice warrior group. I am absolutely. I think okay. I have a responsibility. So just to like be you there. proudly support the patriarchy, right? You proudly support social justice warriors. So now that's unique. Indeed. That's actually why I want the other reason is I think that what we hear is a really sometimes unnuanced, simplified, highly radical, or what do you call it? Uh, not radical, polarized, polarized mm-hmm. view, views on whatever news outlets are. And so to, um, to sit with someone who I think is going to challenge some of our thinking. I think that's 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 going to be interesting, right? Mm-hmm. To hear your perspective as a self-proclaimed social justice warrior, what you mean by that, but also someone who's a Calvinist. Yeah, I think and who I loves have the a, patriarchy. I have a biblical responsibility to be a social justice warrior. I might argue. Okay, so um, what we're going to do today is talk about, yeah. particularly some of the particularly some of the the issues revol- revolving around race yes. relations and how yes. the gospel influences that. So I go. Yeah. Well, I was just going to, I was, I'm glad you said that because I think there are a lot of spaces we can go with this. Right. Right. And I really do feel specifically called and my area of focus has been race. Good. Okay. So let me just apologize up front because we're actually committing a huge faux pas. 
Tell me more about that. Well, it's two white people sitting here pretending uh, yes, to have the, yeah. the ability to understand and discuss race, mm-hmm. even though we're blinded by our by our whiteness, our, uh, well, just that. That's enough. Mm-hmm. So, I'm sorry, folks, but what are you going to do? Um, are, yes. So, trigger warning. Yeah. You know? It's true, but you know what? That just because we are white people because I am a white woman does not mean I don't have a voice and a responsibility to participate in this conversation. Can I sit here and tell you what a person of color feels or would the way a person of color should or would respond to a situation? Absolutely not. Not at all? No. Ever? Ever. I've never been a victim of systemic racism. I haven't. So that means you can never tell a person of color how they should respond to a situation. Well, you know that's a hyperbolic statement. Let's just go there. So can I as a white male preach to women? Oh, absolutely. I-, I don't I don't mean advise. I mean understand and say, "Oh, this is probably what that person is thinking or feeling or this is why that person Good. might have so done that." Good. So that's nuanced. See, that is, yeah. so because if you mean we have zero ability to understand, empathize, communicate, advise, mm-hmm. I don't know how we live in the world. But I think sure. you're saying there is a level of empathy you don't have correct because of your experiences don't 100 percent overlap correct i want to come back to that point because i basically want to ask what role jesus plays in that and, amen yeah um, but i do want to point out right now that leanne is sipping tea i am which is basically the epitome of white privilege i mean this is a hearkening back to english colonialism that's right. so that's like for me that's a microaggression against you yeah right well a, i have a micro to, I, in which case i formally apologize well, that, that's all that matters. Thank you. You know, that's all that matters. Because you actually, you know, I said it's a couple of white people, but I I may or may not be white. Do right. you think race is a social construct? Yes. So can I identify as black? Mm, well, I think it would depend on your experiences. And I, I have to, I know enough to be dangerous. There are Great, spaces, me too. This is what I'm talking there about. There are spaces in this conversation where I just don't know enough to go. So, so, so let me, <coughs> when, when I grew up, in mm-hmm. uh, whatever I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, yep. and I went to white Catholic schools <clears throat> for years, and um, I just realized I better plug my computer in. I think we're good for now. Okay. And for whatever re- I didn't identify with the n- dominant narrative, social constructs, the way that people related, the ways that power was broke, the way that relationships were formed, like, and uh, so I was a a real outcast mm-hmm. and some of that was just I was just a weirdo <laughs> some of it was I think I was a poorer kid in a wealthy uh demographic and yeah. so that was that doesn't mean no one can navigate that I didn't mm-hmm. I felt like a real outcast then when I went to public schools later I found a bunch of kids that I could relate with more and they happened to be most of them black mm-hmm. you know, I grew up in that when hip hop came on the scene, and that's who I ran around with. And I was mm-hmm. like, "These are my people." And like, so in a in a sense, I have an understanding of how race is a social construct, and I understand how we could identify more with certain groups of people depending on our experience. The reason I bring that up is that I think in the social justice world, it is affirmed that gender is a social construct, and therefore, in in to some extent, I agree with that. If they, what they mean usually is gender roles. Roles, sure. They mean the the ways that people are Not expected to to sense, to, yeah. be, to behave or live in society, mm-hmm. according, is 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 shaped by culture, right? Sure. Like, great. 
Therefore, based on that premise that gender is a social construct, you could identify as a man, I could identify as a woman or some variation on some spectrum. But I, but I haven't heard, I have heard it affirmed in some circles that race is a social construct. But right now, the sense seems to be that you got to stop short of being able to identify. I can't identify as a black man. I can't identify as an Asian woman. That's too far. Right. Now, you, I mean, you bring up an interesting paradox. When I say race as a social construct, I mean that biologically we are no different, right? Descendants of Adam and Eve, and biologically that plays out. If you look at, at DNA, science would tell you that there is one race, humans. Right. Um, and so this idea of race has been constructed in order to give people some, pa- some give some people power and take power away from others in various yes. contexts. Um, as far as identification goes, I think because we have, gosh, for lack of a better word, interbreeded racially as the constructs go, um, there are people who will identify in different ways we want to leave space for people to be able to identify probably where their experiences fall. I identify as a white woman. That is my experience. Um, and I don't know a lot about the conversation about identification to say anything. I think, yeah, I need to get some more, some more people in here. Yeah. You know what I would think would be the ultimate troll. Tell me, which is what I'm all about searching for the ultimate troll. If Donald Trump would identify as a woman. Oh my and, and therefore become the first woman president. That would be something. That would be something. You put a bug in his ear. I just did. <laughs> Donald and, J. Trump. And there have been people, um, notably, uh, back in, gosh, I'm going to get this wrong. I wish I had Google in front of me. But a reporter who did all sorts of things to his skin, went down into the oh, South. Yeah. yeah, so there are spaces where we can see people trying to live and understand what it means to carry that outward appearance and then re-enter into society. However, I think that when we say something is a social construct, it, it, we, we have to um, detach it from biological markers. So, for example, like a man, under the, under the current conversation out there, a man doesn't have to have long hair and female body parts to feel like a woman. Sure. He's saying... This is my experience and how I feel comfortable with social signaling or responsibilities. And then sometimes they go and align their their external manifestations with that. Anyway, this is not probably because it feels better in society to Right. Now he doesn't feel at all. He doesn't feel at all. So anyway, that's kind of going down a different uh, yeah. And I um, don't know a lot. I just wanted to start a lot of trouble and not provide a lot of answers. But good. So let me back up here. I know you have some notes, but I do. But let me just at least ask this, Leanne, what, what are some key experiences that have shaped your passion in this area? Absolutely. So be helpful, some background. There. Yeah. So I am a teacher. Like I said, I've been a teacher for, I believe this is my 15th or 16th year. I grew up in a mostly white community about two hours from New York, two hours from Philadelphia. So the city was part of my life, but certainly not anybody who wasn't white. When I started teaching. I started teaching in New York City at a school called Long Island City High School in Queens, and there were about 5,000 students. Wow. Yes, it was enormous. 40 different languages were spoken, incredibly diverse space. And so that started to, I would say, just raise some, if I look back on it, 
implicit biases within myself. I started to just get to know people for the first time who are really different than me, really care about people who have had very different experiences. Can you describe one of the implicit biases that you discovered about yourself? Absolutely. I think if I look back, and I'm not sure I would be able to identify this in this moment, this is upon a great deal of reflection. But I think if I look back, I would say that I had an implicit bias or irrational fear of my black students compared to say my Hispanic How did that manifest? How could you tell? I could tell in the way that I postured towards them. I could tell in the way that I uh, responded in a disciplinary way towards them. I could tell by the way in which I wanted to control those students, particularly men more than other students. Until I got to know them, relationship breaks those biases down. Um, but that was absolutely my, my I can attest to that until my wife and I got married, I was always anxious and fearful around her. And then as we spent time together, I was, I got to see the real, I got past that harsh exterior, that brash. You have a bias against beautiful girls. Well, like your wife, her her temper, her temper. Yeah. Well, you know, I almost, I was, I thought for a minute you weren't coming. So I said, Arby, you're coming on the podcast. There you go. You know, she started to threaten me. <laughs> I had to get out the nine. So I'm glad you showed up. That's you. why the door slams. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so from New York, my, my husband and I, Brett, we moved to Chicago. And in Chicago, I taught in a community called North Lawndale. And that's on Chicago's west side. It is notoriously a community that experiences some of the most violence in the country. And the school is 100% African-American. This, I thought no problem. I just came from New York City. I've got this. Um, But just a complete culture shock. I had no training. And I believed, and we can unpack this more, but I believed that my culture, the way I grew up in school, my white culture, because there is white culture, was the right culture, probably because I grew up with nobody ever challenging that. Give me an example of white culture. Sure. Reservedness, Control, okay. I think are two two. Let me pause factors. here. Sure. Here's what gets, and this is again why you need long conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not reserved. Mm-hmm. I'm expressed. So I'm a black man. Here's what I get into identify. Mm-hmm. So if you say this is white culture, being reserved, being, you know, controlled, and here's colored or minority or black whatever you want to throw in as opposed to white culture mm-hmm. more expressive I'm like oh that's me then well, I but, identify as black but, within community but within you can't culture. identify as something because you are no but I get like 40 of them not perfect what if in I the can, box what if I can add up like 40 of them though? well it still doesn't matter I mean then would you condone if you feel if you have 40 qualities that are culturally feminine changing your biological sex you know i think it's, right right no 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 you and i are in agreement we're in agreement on that, that. No, no, but, no. but there is culture and i think growing up there there's where you can say well i have more empathy or i have more understanding because i've grown up in this particular culture so even though racially i might identify as white you know i've grown up you said you grew up in a culture that was you would say you grew up in black culture to a well, degree Later in life, yeah, right. sure. And and so there are things perhaps you can press into that more than I can. Sure. Can you press into really understanding some of the fears and injustices? Oh no, that because I'm also that? Spanish. So like we're the conquistadors, man. So I'm really conflicted. I'm like historically, you know, my in my veins run the the, yeah. the, the blood of the conquistadors. The sins of your fathers. And then I was unable to like function at this like Catholic school. So 
And not, I want to keep hearing you, but yeah. I, I need the liberty to, to, uh, I know you to do. draw in on things. So like, okay, so white culture, black culture. Yeah. One, in our conversation a few weeks ago, uh, we were talking about all these issues and we had talked about, um, I don't remember the exact contest, so correct me if I've got this wrong. Or, but basically, at, at some point, I believe you said something. We were talking about a school hiring a black man and you said something to the extent of like, yeah, but are they a black culture man? As in, or is it just a man who's like white cultured, but he's filling a space or is he actually... Did I? Was that us? Yeah. Well, maybe not. I don't oh, remember So then that. let's just say it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And, um, and ask that question like, so let's say a, a school or a business or anything saying, hey, we want to have more diversity here. And they get, you know, a black interviewee and he comes in, but his narrative lines more up with what they would be, what would be defined as the dominant culture. Mm-hmm. You know, he had wealthy parents. He went to a privileged school. He's stoic, mm-hmm. and and they would say, "Well, is that really cultural diversity? Or are we just hiring a white man in a black suit?" Tokenism, right? Tokenism. Which I would say the problem there, the challenge is, is kind of making a monolithic black culture, right? This is what, which is, right? Is this what is this white culture? Is this black culture? So, in a sense, it seems strange to me to how do we define that now? When we see that, so when you see black conservatives speak out in uh, politics or on the news or something, their blackness comes into question. You know, well, they're not really, they're, they're, uh, um, uncle Tom's, they're betrayers of the, of the black race because they align with uh, conservative politics, which are dominantly white, uh, in the West, in America, at least, um, is that, is that a violation then of their black, are they not legitimately black then? What if they are, um, you, you know, I'm getting down to like, what is the essence of this? Do they have to be, uh, well, in that construct, do they have to vote Democrat? Do they have to be anti-capitalist? Do they have to be trying to smash the white patriarchy? Do they have to be mm-hmm. uh, expressive? And all right, These I'm just quite, throwing a lot. Yeah, you threw a lot out there. I'm going to say two things. First, I'm going to recommend a book. Called- Is it the Bible? No. Oh, okay. From now on, all <laughs> we always recommend the Bible. We're assuming the Bible, assuming the gospel. Yes. All right, Amen. now let's move on. Now let's move on. I'm going to recommend the book The Hunger of Memory by Richard Rodriguez. I just like the title. I recommend the title. You like that? Oh, just meditate on that. The Hunger Ooh, of Memory. That's like the garden beckoning. That's pretty right on. It's rock on. Okay. Why? He talks about this as a Hispanic, as a Mexican-American. Does he? He does. He talks about this exact thing because he, and he and he, all of these other really fun topics that you'd love to to consider um, affirmative action as a Mexican American person. He he talks about this um, in a way that I think helped me to understand it a little better. And Good. The second thing I'm going to say is I don't know. Yeah. I am white. That is not my experience. So, all right, I just keep going. So. Again, back to the I don't know because I'm white. Yeah, I don't know. So can like how people even communicate across race? Of course, of course. And I think as a here here's what I think sometimes happens, especially in white culture. 
because I am saying things like, I am white, I don't know. Okay. But I'm not saying, I am white, I have no responsibility in this conversation. All right. I just have a different responsibility. And I think we need to press into that. I think some people, and my students included, this is something that we talk about a lot, will say things like, I am white, this is not my problem. Verbatim, Mrs. Erickson, I'm sorry your students were killing each other in Chicago, that's not my problem. They say, because I'm white, it's not my problem? No, but they would say, that's not me. Right, so we would look at things that are happening and apply individual. Well, sure. Only. Is that a white issue? So, so don't doesn't everyone do that? Like people just like that's not my problem. So like, people in Chicago aren't concerned about Redeemer Church. They aren't concerned about what's going on in India. So there's a there's some people would say genocide going on right now in India, Kashmir mm-hmm. region. Mm-hmm. So is that a black issue that the black people as a whole, I'm assuming because most people are like that in Chicago aren't concerned about that? Or is that just like a human issue? Like, yeah, things are out of sight. I think that is a human issue, but I don't think that means we can throw our hands in the air and no, say I agree. we can't do I agree. anything about it. I agree. I guess the rub for me comes when we start assigning, oh, but see, that's a black problem. So that's I think, a white I problem. I think that there is a dominant culture problem because what happens when you are in dominant culture, when you are in the culture of power, and again, these are my observations, but these are also things that other people smarter than me are saying. But when you're in the dominant culture, you're often- Nobody's smarter than you. Thank you. Stop I it. That's that. that feigned humility. I was, I was goading for that one. Yeah, I appreciate you. Brett. I appreciate you taking the bait. Brett is much smarter than you. He is smarter. It's apparent. When you guys are together- Mm-hmm. It's very apparent. Be careful, I'm going to throw down this mic and storm out. Nope. That's why he married you. <laughs> to bolster his image. My Brett, my husband, is very <laughs> smart. He is a lot of, you know, one thing is we get to talk a lot about this stuff because we have a lot of um, agreement and the ability to disagree and challenge each other. It's a beautiful thing. Yes. Um, anyway, <gasps> here when we are in the dominant culture because we are not confronted with a lot of these issues because, and here, don't cut me off, but I'm going to use a church okay. word, privilege allows us oh. to be, I know, I thought so, allows us to be removed from some of these things, to not see them. We, I don't know, I forget where I'm going with this. Um, because of that, I see culturally my white students are less able to empathize with people who are struggling and are more likely to say that's your problem work harder do better figure it out fix it i have no responsibility toward you so let me just agree, just I affirm see. so I, I i agree there's a dynamic there to some extent mm-hmm. in that look white people are the dominant race that i do believe that necessarily means you're going to have opportunities not as a whole there's you know i just talked about my life growing up and how there was struggle and all that but as a whole there's a dominant um demographic whether it be male female there's a there's a there's an advantage there in power in terms of earthly power and Mm -hmm. that provides you with privilege and it gives you the ability the luxury not to have to worry about issues that you aren't confronted with and that could that could fall along Racial lines, it could fall along gender lines, it could fall along just economic lines. You know, wealthy people who are Indian or Asian or black who aren't directly confronted with issues in inner city. But let, um, but let me ask you this, because I know where you're going and I actually want to back up for a second. So yes, you're, you're correct. But as white people, we have played a role in, cons- in c- creating these systemic racist constructs. So let me ask you this. Do we, as, I might even go so far, 
a Christian, the Christian community. We're going to need like a four hour conversation. I, We're not even, we haven't even started. I know I have so many notes, Donovan. I'm trying to, I'm trying That's to right. we'll do it again. You we still here. got 20 some minutes or All so. Right. Let's go. As I'm just going to say as a Christian community, okay, not even as white Christians, but I'm including white Christians. Are we accountable to f- press into and try to serve, fix, correct, undo systemic racism? Sure. Um, so let Why? me let me say a couple things. I, yeah. Because the premise was was uh, I don't know implied a lot. We as white people have constructed these like um, that's tricky it because is, like the, did Augie do that? Right, but is is Augie responsible for the sins of his fathers? What I mean, biblically. When does this end? So I saw a I saw a uh, I read an article by Tabidi Anyabwile. He's a Christian black pastor, and he said, you know, white people need to own up and repent. And it's like, when? How would we know when that happens? When are we done? Mm-hmm. How do? This is very. Doug Wilson, trigger warning, talks about this. We're trying to micromanage justice to the point where it's like, we will never be done with this. I don't know what the answer is, Leanne. Certainly there has been systemic oppression. When is, when are, you're never done. You always seek justice. Um, I think it's very uh, responsible for the sins of the fathers. Oh, man, I don't know how I think about that. I guess we'd have to, we'd have to flesh that out a bit. Who were the fathers? I mean, so we talk about racism in America. Like, so my grandfather's from Spain. So at least maybe you could hold me accountable for like Native American oppression. Uh But like, I didn't even come here until 1972. So did I play a role in that? Or now I'm because I'm white. Now I'm automatically guilty and responsible. Not, we're always responsible to seek betterment for everyone. For everyone. But do I bear guilt? Mm-hmm. Do I bear response like a guilty responsibility? Mm-hmm. There's a difference between responsibility and guilt. Like, um, I can be responsible for my home, and yet there was no guilt involved. Mm-hmm. Now, responsibility doesn't always imply wrongdoing, right? Or am I just wrongdoing simply by the because of the fact that I exist in this country and I'm white? I think that's gonna be re- that's really tough, really tough because. Yeah, well, you know why. Like, what? So the, I, I just don't think that white people have the privilege to step out of these conversations. I think that we are, we must press in. I mean, when is it done? I, I think, I think we let's get biblical about this. When is it done? When is it finished? Right to to pull in. Christ died for sins, the sins of Adam and Eve. Right, that we carried with us, uh, that we were responsible for, that we needed, we needed a savior to come in and pay for that. And I think if we look at the Bible, and I'm going to recommend something else. Tim Keller in 2012 put out a really interesting. Well, he spoke, and now it's an article too about this, called something like the Perspectives on Race by a white guy. It's a great. It's a great read. But one of the things he talks about is that sin is never just individual, right? That there is always a corporate element to this. And when we even go in and suffering, I think this is a whole other thing. Yes, suffering is a privilege, but there's no such thing as biblical masochism. Even 
you know, the ultimate suffering, Christ dying on the cross, Judas did the thing that started that and paid for that, right? So I think that we need to remember that there is corporate responsibility to acknowledge and repent for sins. Daniel repented the sins of his fathers, though he did not participate in them. Achan and his entire family were killed for his Whoa. sins, though they did not participate in them. So I think, and and I think what some will argue, or what you can argue, is that that is because we are responsible. So we're benefiting from the sins of our fathers, which I would say we are. As what I as a white person, I'm benefiting from the sins of white people on American soil. Let's get real specific, right? Because I know we can say, well, what about this people group? Sure. What about this people group? As a white person, I am benefiting from the sins of my fathers, my wealth, my um, status, the way I can walk into spaces in freedom. I am <clears throat> benefiting from that. And so do I think payment means giving up all of that? I don't know. I think more so payment means bringing other people in. Sure. So probably I affirm a lot of that. Do we benefit from we benefit from that which has gone before us and some a lot of that, some of it, whatever, some degree of it has been sinful. And sure, if if we're just saying, hey, we we recognize that and we want to use that privilege, that power to be a blessing, great. I, and, and, we, and maybe this is something we just agree to disagree on. I have a real trouble with saying to repent of something someone else did. And maybe I'm just too reformed or whatever. Like, But again, I don't think that I need repentance to take responsibility, right? Like, oh, I can take responsibility and care. Because some, some responsibility is just, is just because you exist. Like Adam and Eve, be responsible for the garden. Why? What did we do? We didn't do anything. I put you here. You have a responsibility to seek the shalom and flourishing of of people and the trees and the animals like so i don't need a direct correlation between sin and responsibility i'm not saying you do i'm just expressing that so sure. i can say i don't know i don't know if i'm guilty of the sins of my fathers that doesn't mean and i'm not saying we should step out of the conversation i'm trying to nuance the conversation because i think i think if i say to i can imagine maybe i'm wrong the majority of evangelicals if i say you are guilty of the sins of your fathers and you need to repent as oppressors they'd be like what the what are you talking about and it's just automatically triggering and we could have a nuanced conversation about that but if i said god wants you to seek the flourishing of all mankind and we and we're all brothers and you have some advantages that you could steward there's certainly some people who are like screw that screw those colored people but most people that i know would be like yeah that makes sense there's like there's I think it's maybe unhelpful ways that people filter, which is why we need long conversations. Because I, I would say that people would say, yeah, I'm, that makes sense, and then do nothing about it. I think one of the ways of yeah, that's re true. repentance is recognizing implicit bias. I have to repent my own racist ideas. The sins of my father not only gave me benefits, but they gave me burdens. When a people group is oppressed, both the oppressed and the oppressor are burdened and dehumanized. I have been dehumanized in the sense that I have trouble, and I, I am working on this, I have implicit bias that I look at my black brothers and sisters in Christ, not in Christ, and I think things that may or may not be true i know you can say well that's humanness well but I, I what i want to be careful just because i say something's human see when i bring this up when i say something's human it's not to say well that's okay mm -hmm. because i believe humans are totally depraved Certainly. and need to repent so it's not justifying it 
and this isn't about you. I haven't spoken with you enough to talk about this. And this is part of, I think, what was challenging in our last conversations. I'm imputing a lot of what I hear in the media yes. to anyone who, who walks in that world. So that, that is a very common, I think, I'm going to go as far as to say problem. So, yes. Right. And here's, here's another problem. Um, I want to be an equal opportunity offender. Because when I read the Bible, Jesus calls out the Jews and he calls out the Gentiles. Absolutely. He doesn't say to the, the Jews, well, you know what? You guys are oppressed by the Romans and therefore you're all. So I want to call out white corporate sin, black corporate sin, Indians, everybody. Every Did the conquistadors come over and slaughter the Indians? Sure. And they were slaughtering one another up until that and they all stand condemned. Now, someone may say, well, as a white man, you don't have the right to speak into that. I just say bull crap. I'm a preacher. I've been called to do that. Paul was sent to all kinds of races and so am I. And I believe Jesus gives me one permission, responsibility and revelation, enough revelation to truly understand into things and not go, well, I'm blinded by my whiteness. Therefore, I can't speak about this. I want equal opportunity offense and just try to go on, go on Facebook today and say, White people really need to check themselves and da da da. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And go on there and say, black people really need to check themselves, and you will see what happens. Say, put out an ad about toxic masculinity, and boy, you know, you got the red carpet rolling out for you. Put out, and we're going to do an episode called Toxic Femininity here and Toxic Masculinity because they both need caught out. You can't, it is not popular to address toxic femininity. And I get why. It's because there's a reaction to is who is historically held power right white men which is true i affirm that and there's some toxicity in there that needs to be addressed i just think if we're only not you but to the extent that we are um isolating who we call out that's that's a problem now i have a different responsibility someone can have a special focus you say hey here's my focus here's my area of passion and expertise what i'm working on therefore of course i'm talking about this a lot as a pastor i would think i have to be a generalist it would be very dangerous for me to zero in hey i'm just going to talk about how you know white power has you know influenced culture and people like i think that would be dangerous for me i think i need to cover it all so that's when i say that's human again i'm not saying hey therefore we're off the hook i'm saying yes and that's how that's how sin manifests in male Tendencies. This is how it manifests in female tendencies. Here's how it manifests in majority cultures. Here's how it manifests in minority cultures. So the sins of minority culture, just real quickly, would tend toward be seeking vengeance, which is a sin. Mm -hmm. And God says, don't do that. Right? So I would want to be in a place where I can call that out. Right? And yet seek justice. So blah, blah, blah. There's my little sermon. Go. So here's my question. Would, or maybe it's more of a statement... Sometimes I think in our desire to be, how what was the term you used? Balanced. What's that? I don't know. Fair, balanced. Balanced. Like Fox News. Yes. In, in, sometimes in our concern to be hyper balanced, to be an equal opportunity offender, offender, we actually don't ever talk about anything well. We don't. We are fearful of pressing Right, it becomes a, an excuse it's to watered, not actually talk about it's the thing. It's watered down. Well, that's Here, what I'm doing. Here's another book, because I really do want to... I would love to press in to this issue yes. and, and really say, okay, let's get away. Let's stop talking in Facebook 
or in like tweet language and really talk about what is racism? What happened to people of color in this country? And one of the things that happened is they were hung from trees, right? The Cross and the Limching Tree by James Cone is an incredible book that talks about the unique, beautiful, horrific connection between people of color in this country. Did you say beautiful and, and horrific? Yes. Like the cross. Yes, like on, the girl. cross. Okay. And I think we need to talk about that. And as believers, we need to talk about that. And we need to feel the pain yeah. of our history. We need to feel feel the weight of our sin. We need to say Facebook, Twitter, be damned. And we need to say, no, people, tell me about your pain so that I can tell you how Jesus speaks to that. And then we can have justice. What is biblical justice? To make right, to love your neighbor as yourself. If we carry implicit bias, if we carry racism, if we are unwilling to examine our personal defects, then you know what? I can't look at my black neighbor and love him as myself because I've already thought a whole bunch of different things about him that make him less than me. In order to love someone as myself, well, guess what? I need to see them as myself. And if I don't, if I, and in order to do that, I need to see myself as a sinner saved by grace ultimate sinner saved by grace. Recognize my personal brokenness so that when I see brokenness in someone else, I don't say, shame on you. I say, tell me about that. And let me tell you about my Jesus. And that's social justice from a Christian biblical perspective. We can talk about constitutional justice too. Heck, people of color were guaranteed the right to vote over a hundred years ago and still are denied access to that. And we can talk about that, but I, I want to press in and in this, in this book, Hey, great sermon, but the audio failed. Shut I'm up. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I, I actually just have I the power. So I turned, when you started getting passionate and yeah, clear, I just turned it down. Turned it down. You don't want to hear about no, that. No, man, I'm silencing this. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So some toxic. Oh, go ahead and start reading right that quote. There. I see how I feel about it. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to talk about suffering. You ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So this it talks about... Emmett. All right, stay on that mic, though, girl. Okay. Emmett Till. Yes. Who many people know, but in case you don't, he was a young boy who was from Chicago, visited some family in Mississippi, allegedly whistled at a white woman, and that woman later in, said she had lied about that. Her husband and brother-in-law kidnapped him and lynched him, beat him I, I mean, it's it's brutal, sure. it's br- brutal lynching. Emmett Till's mother felt compelled to call the media and open that casket so that people could see what was done to her child. And it is argued that that moment of public awareness of horrific suffering was the start of the civil, civil rights movement. So Emmett Till's mother... Says. Well, she says a few things, but in this book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, which again, I highly recommend, um, this is what is said. Suffering always poses the deepest test of faith, radically challenging its authenticity and meaning. No rational explanation can soothe the pain of an aching heart and troubled mind. In the face of the lynching death of an innocent child, black Christians could only reach into the depth of their religious imagination for a transcendent meaning that could take them through despair to hope beyond tragedy. 
For Mrs. Bradley, this is Emmett Till's mother, the voice she heard was the voice of the resurrected Jesus. It spoke of hope that, although white racists could take her son's life, they could not deprive his life and death of ultimate meaning. As in the resurrection of the crucified one, God could transmute defeat into triumph, ugliness into beauty, despair into hope, the cross into resurrection. And so, like Paul, Mrs. Bradley was from 2 Corinthians, afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not unto despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. I would argue that it is a responsibility and a privilege for all Christians, for white Christians to say, I want to stand up for justice for my brothers and sisters of color. It's a responsibility. We have to. We are told to. And I think when you when you dig in to what that pain really is, to what that suffering really is, then for my own heart is torn open. I realize that if I am going to follow Jesus, then this has to be part of it. It has to be. That's it. That's it right. That's good. Um Yes. So again, what I'm hoping you're hearing here is a nuanced conversation where you're hearing maybe being challenged on some stuff and some assumptions, but also finding some uh, common ground in terms of other assumptions about reality and human dignity and God and his calling on us to justice. I think so. Let me let me just affirm something you're saying in terms of um, you can't use. The multiplicity of sins to avoid conversations. An- analogy. Your wife comes in and says, hey, I feel like you've been really neglectful, whatever. And you say, oh, yeah, well, you, this is what aboutism, right? Like, Correct. Well, you this and that. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, everyone sins and boom, boom. Now suddenly no one's having a productive conversation. Like, So it could seem like that's what I'm doing. And I think part of it, again, the challenge is that I'm, we're coming from different perspectives. You're narrowing in on something that's an area of passion and focus, which is good. And I'm reacting to what I'm seeing in the culture in terms of polarization and how people are unfairly, and it happens the other way too. I mean, I will blast conservatism to say that we ha- we need that, that we need to take personal responsibilities. Like, uh, yeah, and we'll be held responsible. However, what do you have that you did not receive? I am a Calvinist. I'm a monergist, which means you didn't earn your home. Correct. You didn't build Correct. that. You didn't. So I will speak against that. Yeah, hundred percent. And maybe I'll. I'll do that in another podcast. Um, so, again, maybe that's where some of the, uh, like, what are our assumptions coming in? What is our perspective? What have we been hearing? What I've been hearing is a lot of uh, shots across the uh, bow, right, left, right, left, right, left. And I'm like, I am not happy with the way that pe- that assumptions are being made about everybody. About blacks, about whites, about this is just unnuanced, not biblically informed. And so then what happens is, right, so someone's watching whatever, all these podcasts, and and the social justice warrior becomes a caricature. And so, I certainly have some issues with that. Certainly, and, and, and over righteousness and righteousness, you know, it just it it absolutely. But I I think as Christians, we ha- that's why we have to be in this conversation. Yes. That's why we have to condemn from the pulpit, condemn from the microphone, condemn from the classroom, and teach 
teach, teach. What are we commanded to do? John 15, love one another as I have loved you, right? Love one another as I have loved you. Well, guess what? That means that I have to do some self-examination and look at and say to myself, what are the barriers in my heart from loving you? And doesn't loving you mean standing up for you? If you, if I see my child being bullied, I, I love my child. I want to, to protect him from that to a degree. Certainly we can argue that being bullied can create strength and things like that, but I'm also compelled to protect and then talk about how that pain is okay. I am not compelled to watch, to watch and say, good, Abraham, you know, my son's name. Now you'll lean on Jesus more. You know, when Jesus sat amongst 5,000 hungry people, he did not say, I'm so glad you're hungry. Now you'll learn to trust me. He fed them. So I think we also need to be responsible. I think part of loving is meeting needs, of lifting voices, of bringing people in. And and I don't think we do that. And I think one of the things, this book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. When you say, I don't think we do that, what do you mean? I really am talking about, I want to see more Christian people stepping into this conversation and, and standing up and saying, this is not political. This is biblical. I am tired of politicizing racism. And I think there is such a fear that if you speak out against racism, you'll be called liberal. Or if you don't, you'll be called conservative. That people are frozen. And what happens is we have an action and we just continue to perpetuate this cycle of lack of knowledge. I did not, there was so much I did not learn about in school right? Probably because my teachers, my white teachers didn't learn about it in school. I want to break these cycles. I want better schools. I want better education. I want better understanding. And I want Christian people to be part of that because ultimately we are willing to say, but for the grace of God, there go I. And so when I talk about this with my students, because I'm having, while not outwardly, because I am in a public school, but because I am ultimately having gospel-centered conversations, they're asking questions like, well, what could have possibly happened to that person who was enslaving people to make them think that that's okay? And what a horrible tragedy that their whole life they believed that that was okay. It's a whole other space of oppression, you know, right alongside with. So they're not just condemning that person and condemning that person and condemning that person, but they're saying we have a common brokenness that we need to admit if we're going to fix anything. And we need to talk more like that if we want to get anything done. Yeah, and at the and at the very least, I think even if you look at yourself and say, "Well, I haven't had slaves, or I haven't, um, I didn't write the laws." Sure. Uh, so this is where, as a preacher, I would say, "Sure, those things don't grow overnight, though." Like, what are the seeds of that? Where do they come from? What are the fears? What are Correct. the insecurities? Because none of us are holy. So I'm a firm believer that, given the right circumstances. Um, any any society could become Nazi Germany. I agree. Right? We're not better than the Nazis. Correct. So, yes, maybe you didn't write the current laws. Maybe you aren't participating explicitly in the high school to prison pipeline. Maybe you didn't have slaves. Maybe you did. your family did just come here from New Zealand in the 80s. And you, great. All right. But do you recognize within yourself where you lack trust, where you lack empathy, where you lack love, where you lack compassion, where you lack generosity, where you lack uh, a desire for others' well-being, where you protect yourself, where like everybody has that. Mm-hmm. And and maybe you don't agree with where I am uh, 
suggesting that it's manifesting in your life, but where is it? And if you can't answer that question, I think you're you're blind. Right. And where does that? So again, I think one error is to see racism everywhere. Another one is to see it nowhere. Mm -hmm. Right. So a challenge to maybe more conservative types. Like, <clears throat> do you believe Christians? Do you believe sin exists? Do you believe it manifests in in uh, systems? Do you? And if so, where can you identify that? Where can you identify that in the in the American system? It there, there it has to be somewhere, mm -hmm. or we're saying sin isn't that pernicious. Sin and isn't do, that. And do you believe you have a responsibility to do something about it, even if you aren't directly experiencing it? I would say yes. Step one, identify personal biases. Step two, get to know people who are experiencing it. If we don't know people, we don't care about issues. I think that's a really important piece. So we need to step out of our comfort zones. Who are you trying to know and understand? Who are you at listening to? Are you listening to people of color about the situation or are you simply listening to other people who are in agreement with you? Are you, are you identifying and self-examining your own heart? Are you actually able to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly? What are the boundaries, like you said, to that? We have to identify those. We have to identify those. And I think if we did, then we would be compelled to have more conversations. One of the things this book talks a lot about is the fact that during the era of mass lynchings, which took more lives than the Holocaust did, but we don't talk about it a whole lot. Um, during the era of mass lynchings, the church was eerily silent. They asked people of color to move slower in change and transformation. And I believe that that was because an unwillingness to press in and know people and listen to people. What changed Abraham Lincoln's mind about enslaved people and what to do about that? Listening to Frederick Douglass. We have to listen to people. I think sometimes white people really believe and I know I'm speaking in generalizations and, I, and I'm speaking from my own heart. I believed that I knew. I believed that I understood. And that was a major barrier to, to me making any progress with my students who looked different than me, had different experiences than me, acted different than me, because I just thought I knew better. And I don't. Yes. Good. Um, we're running out of time here. Mm -hmm. You got... A job to get to. I do. You got to go serve the system. I do. Go play your part in the oppression. No, I'm breaking it down, man. Well, that's what you think. You got to get into no, it. You got to get into the system to break it down. You're saying just enough to participate, girl. Mm. <laughs> I would disagree. I would disagree. Well, of course. You got to yeah. justify yourself. I'm just kidding. Everyone just relax here, especially you. Um, I hey, would, here's interesting. Well, go ahead. I would love to make... I know go, I'm go recommending ahead, a lot of things, but I'm sure. a fan of listening, so I want to make two more recommendations. Ijoma Oluo okay. wrote a book called So You Want to Talk About Race All right. that I recommend. Um, in it, she makes the point that a lot of times we think about race as white people from our own personal experiences. And so we can fall into this idea of, well, if I don't see it, it must not exist or delegitimize other people people of color's experience with racism. It's a really great book. It addresses, I think, a lot of what we're talking about. So again, Ijoma Oluo, So You Want to Talk About Race. The book that transform, transformed my heart was the Bible. The book that 
ignited a passion for this that I believe the Lord used to ignite a passion for this is just mercy called Brian Stevenson. And he is a believer though. He doesn't always outwardly say he is, he is a believer and he talks about brokenness, right? And I think about the Psalm, um, let these broken bones rejoice. Mm. The acceptance of our brokenness is what can lead to change and to justice. And if I may, I would love to read a short paragraph um, about that. Sure. Permission granted. Hey, you're the one that has to get to work. It's true. I do. Okay. I'm going to read this and then be done and you can stick it wherever you need to. Paul Farmer, the renowned physician who has spent his life trying to cure the world's sickest and poorest people, once quoted me something that the writer Thomas Merton said, we are bodies of broken bones. I guess I'd always known, but never fully considered that being broken is what makes us human. We all have our reasons. Sometimes we're fractured by the choices we make. Sometimes we're shattered by the things we never would have chosen. But our brokenness is also the source of our common humanity, the basis for our shared search for comfort, meaning, and healing. Our shared vulnerability and imperfection nurtures and sustains our capacity for compassion. We have a choice. We can embrace our humanness, which means embracing our broken natures and the compassion that remains our best hope for healing. Or we can deny our brokenness, forswear compassion, and as a result, deny our own humanity. Christian, let your broken bones rejoice. Acknowledge that you are a sinner saved by grace so that when you see brokenness, you do not say what's wrong with you, but you say what's happened to you and can I tell you about Jesus so that justice can be achieved. Justice means to make right. We need to do more to make more right. Good stuff. Uh, I mean, absolutely. And we'll just add to that, you know, as you were reading that, um, or not add, but compliment, whatever, when, when God came to identify with us, he came yes. and suffered, yes. right? So, yeah, so that idea of yes. of what it really takes to empathize with people mm-hmm. is, right? We do not have a God who is, I'm, I'm butchering this, I'm paraphrasing it. What is it? Who is unfamiliar with our sufferings, right? right? But was tempted in any way we are. Right. So there's, Amen. Praise, and praise God for that. Right. The best, the best real deepest relationships are not when you... You know, you played cornhole together and had Correct. some beers. Yeah, that was fun. But when you really saw someone and saw brokenness and then hope arise through that, Correct. right? So, um, good. Well, uh, probably because of our whiteness and blindness, we have just inadvertently perpetuated oppression. So we repent for that. But whatever. You know what? I think we were able to step boldly into a conversation and I encourage more white people to do so. Here's the thing. It's okay to mess it up for white people. It's okay for someone to tell you that offended me. That hurt me to be okay with it and to be able to continue talking. Don't let that quiet you. But more than talking, white people, listen, please listen. We have so much to learn. I have so much to learn about this. And Is I that think a that's unique white thing? That is what Come I... Come on, I'm doing whataboutism now. Sure, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so that's me. Now, now, to be fair, now, again, what's your target audience? Like, I've said I want to be an equal opportunity offender. True. Yeah. However, I don't have a voice into the Native American community. 100%. I don't have do a I. voice at this point into the African American community, really. I don't have a voice into India and what's going on. I mean, I may be able to find that, but... You have a voice uh, in the white community. I have a voice a big in... one. Yes, sir. Oh, very big. Mm-hmm. So so that 
in all fairness, I think that's important to remember. If Leanne or me or someone that keeps saying, hey, white people this way, well, that's who they're called to. So again, you're, Correct. for context, you're a teacher of white students. Correct. Your job is not to tell the white students how the black people are sinning. Correct. Correct. The black people may be sinning and someone may, well, they are, and someone will be called to that. But it would be unfair for me to say, yeah, yeah, Leanne, but what about, right. what about, you know, Chinese oppression? Like, well, I'm in Mount Vernon right. <laughs> talking to white kids. Like, I'm going to speak to them. Yeah. So that's it's, appropriate. It is. It is. And I think that, that we have to be okay to say, like, let's speak to white people. Let's do that as white people. I love speaking to white people. I built my whole life around that. <laughs> I got nothing. For it's very comfortable. Then. Anyway, <laughs> there's a mix of seriousness and foolishness here so hopefully you'll pick out what's good and helpful so talk to leanne more nuance the conversation to me i really think that's a big part of this is getting past the sound bites and the assumptions and just talk to people talk to uh black people talk to white people talk to what talk to people right all right there's a lot of great articles you can go ahead i have i've got a video of a speech i gave recently called what should we teach white kids that i think you could take a listen to talk to me about yell at me for whatever you want to do but I think we need to be part of this conversation, and I ask that you come along and join me in it. That's good. All right. Thank you for coming. Thank See you for you all having soon. me. Bye.